All right, good morning. Good to see you here today. <clears throat> Welcome to Gateway if you're a guest. Thanks for uh, finding us and spending a little bit of time here with us today. If you're not a guest, thanks for being a regular. Thanks for coming back. We appreciate you. A lot of good things happening here and at other, other campuses across the area. <clears throat> you know, uh, it's been alluded to already, but later today some of us, maybe most of us, will be watching, uh, watching a game, sports game, where people are where people are paid way too much money uh, and it costs seven million dollars for a 30-second advertisement 30 million I'm sorry <clears throat> 30 seconds seven million might as well be 30 million though right for us 6.5 million last year <clears throat> compare that to 1967 the very first Super Bowl uh, the cost of an an advertisement was about 40000 Now That was a lot of money in 1967. Anybody around in 1967? Yeah, I, I was around barely <clears throat> and would love to have had um, uh, $40,000 in my bank account as a two-year-old. But um, it's crazy, isn't it? Now, one advertisement that I want you to pay attention to this year, if you're watching. If you're not watching, don't worry about it. Anybody out there in the I don't care camp, <laughs> a few of you, yeah. okay, so if you don't care, that's okay, but you've probably seen on TV on other shows that you've been watching this one particular commercial brand, this commercial brand that's called He Gets Us, anybody seen that? <clears throat> he Gets Us is a, is a $100 million advertising campaign of some very wealthy and anonymous Christians are funding and starting. He Gets Us, uh, you can go to their website, hegetsus.com, and learn more about it. But according to their website, their goal is to reintroduce, I quote here, to reintroduce people to the Jesus of the Bible in his confounding love and forgiveness. That's what it says on their website. And, um, you know, with 100 million people watching the game, minus a few of you, a uh, hundred million people. Why not? You know, why not spend seven million dollars? And I've heard they're spending twenty million, which means they might have two commercials tonight. You watch if you're watching. Watch that commercial all the way through, because that commercial and the the uh, the people behind that commercial are supposed to be on our side, right? They're supposed to be on our side, and hopefully they are. Now I'm still mixed about it. I'm still I've got mixed feelings about it. I need to study it a little bit more. I'm reading articles both for and against, and this is a massive marketing campaign to recast Jesus in their in their opinion as the biblical Jesus, and to <clears throat> and to fight against what some of us may be guilty of doing, which is portraying Jesus as something he's not really portraying him as something he's not. You know, when I was growing up, we had a picture of Jesus on the back wall. At least my first church we did. I, I know we had one in my home church somewhere, and it was a, you know, it was a very light-skinned, blue-eyed, uh, pretty Jesus. You know, he was pretty. Anybody have that experience in your church? Yeah. And perhaps Jesus did look like that. I don't think so. He was a Middle Eastern man. Probably he looked more like, uh, more like that. But, um, you know, we have, according to this campaign, over the centuries, we have, 
we have kind of made people think that Jesus is a certain way that he might be against. We might be portraying that he's against certain things that they say he's not or that he, he lived in a certain way that, uh, you know, we're trying to say we've kind of cast him into our own American image or something. And, and maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. Uh, you know, this kind of reminds me of the Chosen series because they say that the, uh, both the Chosen series and the uh, He Gets Us campaign, it, it, it is working to some degree. It's, it's making people go to the you know, version Bible app in most cases or the Bible and read about Jesus. <clears throat> and when you read about Jesus in the Bibles, you know that some of the portrayals of him, like the Chosen, and I love the Chosen, you know, but they have to fill in some of the gaps. They have to fill in the gaps and uh, kind of study the, the time and fill in some of the gaps. And uh, this He Gets Us campaign is kind of maybe not happy with some of the gaps or at least some of the things we've done with Jesus over, over the years. So my, I'm going to reserve verdict, all right, on He Gets Us. But I want you to watch it because we're in the year of foundations <clears throat> in which we're trying to build foundations into our lives or at least shore them up and to build foundations, biblical values, godly, righteous, biblical values into the lives and hearts of our children. And in this year, we need to open our eyes a little bit more because we are, make no mistake about it, in a battle. You hear what I'm saying? We're in a battle. And if you're not sure about that or if my words come to you and you're like, gee whiz, what are you talking about? We're not in a battle. I'm living battle-free in my life. Then maybe you're not living your life the way you should be living your life because we're in a battle. <clears throat> and the culture is fighting against us, pushing against us. I mean, if our culture had its way, Christianity would disappear off the face of the earth. It really would because uh, at the very, at the very uh, most, it would be, uh, you know, it'd be relegated to a, a, just an extreme faction over here that nobody pays attention to. So uh, we're in a battle, and we need to have our eyes open. And so we need to watch things. We need to, we need to see things out there. We need to watch TVs with a critical spiritual eye. We need to watch the shows our kids are watching with a spiritual critical eye. We need to watch the commercials that are playing. When you take your attention off the TV, but your kids are still watching... We need to watch those with a critical spiritual eye. And, and also this commercial. We need, to, we need to watch things that seem to be against us and things that seem to be for us so that we can, you know, we can uh, get on the same page and we can fight together. I don't know if you remember, but there was a moment in the life of Jesus where his disciples discovered that there were some other people casting out demons and doing some things in his name. You remember this, Rob? And, and they came to Jesus and said, these guys are doing this in your name, and they're not with us. Do you want, us, you want us to stop them? You want us to put a stop to them? And I'm sure, you know, Peter was uh, front in line there because Peter, you know, he, was, he, liked to, he liked to confront people, right? I mean, he cut the ear off of the, of the soldier uh, or the high priest's servant. What did Jesus say? He said, no, 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 don't stop them. If they're not preaching against me, then they're for me. And so that kind of tells me there might be some people doing some things in some ways that maybe we don't agree with, but that doesn't make it wrong. It just makes my methodology different than their methodology. So think about that, but open your eyes spiritually to what's going on around us. And let's, 
We'll, we'll visit this He Gets Us campaign a little bit later when we see more of it. Again, there are articles out there for it and some against it, and they're interesting articles. But here's, here's what I think. I think Jesus does get us, and he understands who we are. He, he, he understands. He was living in the first century. You know, maybe tonight you'll see a commercial that says he was a refugee. He and his family fled the, uh, you know, the reach of uh, King Herod and go to Egypt to save their life, and then, then they had to come home, and they were homeless and all this stuff. He, he gets us because he's been there. We know this. The Bible says no temptation. You haven't experienced anything except that he's already experienced it. He's been through grief. He's been through uh, rejection. He's been through betrayal. He's been through loss. He's been through sorrow. So much of what you and I go through today, he's been through. He gets us. The question that we're going to entertain over the next 13 weeks James, we're going to cover in 13 weeks. I could do it in four, but we're going to do it in 13. We're going to dig deeper. And that question is, do we get him? Do we get Jesus? <clears throat> it's one thing for him to get us, but the big question for us is, do we get him? And this is what this book of James is about. Now, it's going to be 13 weeks. It's a deep dive into James. We're, I mean, we're going to dive down and hold our breath for as long as we can, and we're going to soak up all the beautiful gems underneath, hidden in the waters and we're going to come up and give some air, and then we're going to dive right back down, and we're going to get into this, and we're going to study this book for 13 weeks, scattered in with Foundation Sundays and Easter Sunday, and it's going to take us through the month of June. So if you want to know where to park in your devotional reading or in your personal time, uh, park in James for a while. Now, James is a popular book. I know, uh, uh, you know some of you took Matt, Matt's class last, uh, last fall, I was here at Vintage Service on uh, Wednesday. <clears throat> Dave Taylor preached, guess where from? The first chapter of the book of James. I almost stopped him and said, wait, I'm going to cover that on Sunday. But actually, I'm going to cover what he covered next Sunday. And uh, lots of people have told me, uh, yeah, they've studied James. They love James. It's a favorite book, isn't it? It's a, it's a great book. And the reason it is is because it's practical. It's practical. And here's the premise of James. If you understand who Jesus is, if you get Jesus your life is going to look a whole lot different than the life of those who don't know Jesus. I mean, let's give them some credit. We have, we have kind of been a little hypocritical about Jesus over the years. And when I say that, what I mean is we've told people that Jesus works for you. He works in your marriage. Yet the divorce rate among Christians is as high, or some say higher than it is among non-Christians. How can we say, hey, Jesus will work for you. He'll work for your marriage. When Christians are throwing in the towel on their marriage at a higher rate than non-Christians are. Or we can go down the list of things, of shows that we watch or things that we listen to or places we visit or the way we spend our money and we could just go on and on and on. How you live your life really is reflective of the fact of whether or not you really get Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Out your amen. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, uh, we're going we're gonna to dig deeper into James and see what it is where we need some course correction about our lives. And James is so practical. Many scholars believe this book was the earliest New Testament book written. <clears throat> 
That's important because you think about it, uh, they say about 45, A.D. 45, and if you remember, uh, you can do the math here, Jesus died, we believe, somewhere around 30, 33, and so that makes this book only about 12 years after Jesus' resurrection. The church was a baby. I mean, it was an, it was an infant. I mean, this church, this 15, 12-year-old church was so young, they wouldn't even have brought it to church. It was so young. Some of you young moms can appreciate that, right? It was a young church. And so James, uh, you know, became like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is the way we ought to be living. That's what James is all about. Now, not everybody's loved this book over the years. Martin Luther did not like this book. Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation, the church Witten. The door at the Church of Wittenberg, Martin Luther. He didn't like this book. In fact, he called it an epistle of straw. He didn't want it in, taught in the schools. And can you believe it? It was taught in the schools back in his day. Because uh, Martin Luther was reacting to a heavy Roman Catholic church that emphasized justification by works. So they taught works, you know, you got to do this, you got to do this, and hopefully at the end of your life you'll have more good works than you have bad works. And if you have a few more good works than bad works, you'll make it into heaven. And if for some reason you don't make it into heaven because you're not quite there and you end up in a place called purgatory, then maybe your friends and neighbors can do some works for you, or at least they can pay some money for you to get out of there and go up there. And that was kind of the Catholic church that Martin Luther was, was reacting against. So when James comes along and talks about faith and what? Works, a faith, a faith that works. I don't know where we are on the slides. A faith that works. Uh, when James talks about a faith that works, Martin Luther was like, whoa, wait a minute. We can't emphasize works. But we need works, don't we? <clears throat> we, need, we need the book of James. And, uh, and hey, let's admit, we don't get to choose what books are in our Bible, do we? We weren't in the Council of Nicaea, where the church leaders of the time got together and they collected all these writings that had been floating around since the time of Jesus. And they said, we got to have some established rules here. We need a canon, C-A-N-O-N. We need a read of measurement. We need to let everybody know this is what's certified and this is what we believe is not certified. So they, they base their decisions uh, really on three things. Number one, who was the author? This book that's floating around, this letter's floating around, who wrote that? Uh, this, this guy says he was, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, this person, but we know that person didn't write that. And, and so uh, authorship, who wrote it? Were they an apostle? Were they closely related to the apostles? That's who wrote the books of the New Testament. Secondly, what did they write? What's in them? Content. What's in them? Does, does what they say in this book agree with, for instance, what the apostles say Jesus said in the Gospels? Is there any big contradictions? Does it agree? Is it complementary of what Jesus taught and what the apostles taught? And then the last one was date. When was it written? Because some of those books were written in a, in a, you know, a later Greek or some other kind of language. <clears throat> even maybe uh, later years of Latin, and, and they said this, this kind of language was not around in the first century. This was clearly written 
uh, you know, this was clearly written second century or third century. So with those three criteria, authorship, content, and date, they decided what's in the Bible. And guess what? James made the cut. To the chagrin of Martin Luther, who said, I want it out. I want it out of the schools. He wasn't quite there to take it out of the Bible, but he didn't like it because he was a justification by faith alone, which was a central tenet of the Reformation movement. It de-emphasized the works of the Catholic Church, and it said, let's, let's all agree that we're saved by grace through faith. And you can't work your way to heaven. So he was kind of reacting there, but we love James. You, we love James, and we can't take it out of our Bibles, unless you're like the little old lady who came up to a preacher one day after a sermon and said, hey, this, what you preach about today is not in my Bible. He said, sure it is. It's every Bible. She says, not my Bible. He said, let me see your Bible. So he took her Bible. She op- he opened it up to the book of James, and uh, I think it was chapter 3 where it talked about taming the tongue. And sure enough, she had taken scissors and cut that page out of her Bible. So you can do that if you want to, but uh, if it's in the Bible, we got to deal with it, right? We got to deal with it. And man, I am so excited to deal with the book of James. It is a great book to study, to preach, to learn. It, it, it is about practical Christian behavior because I suggest to you today that he gets us, but your life will determine whether or not you get him. You with me? And we can look at your life and, and determine whether or not you really get Jesus. James is down to earth. It's for the common man, the common believer. It's practical. It's true religion. It's head, hands, feet, heart, and tongue. It's grass and gardens and trees and fruit. It's boats and water and wind and sea. It's lust and love of money and self and sin and pride and prejudice. It's a reminder of mortality and a challenge for eternity. It's a faith that works. It's faith and works. It's faith in action. It's a faith that works. It's a faith that works in us. It's a faith that works for us. It's a faith that works through us. And it's a faith that goes to work. Are you with me? You still with me? Now, that's a summary of the book of James. <clears throat> and if you want to live, let me suggest to you, if you want to live a life in Jesus that results in good works and live a life where faith works for you, then this is the book you need to study. This is, the, this is what the real Jesus would do. So, uh, you know, the, the criticism of the book of James, remember, James was the first book. He hadn't read the book of Romans yet <laughs> because it hadn't been written. And Martin Luther came to faith by reading the book of Romans, which highlights justification by faith alone sola fide and so uh james the only thing james knew was that he he once did not believe and now he believed and it had changed his life and because it changed his life his life changed and so uh, only one verse today verse one james a servant of god and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Hello. That's greetings. Hello. Well, you guys need to wake up. <laughs> so only one verse today. We'll really jump into the rest of this next week. But let's answer two questions today. Who, who's this guy? 
And who's he writing to? Who's this guy? Who's he writing to? Well, the name James was a popular name in the first century. You won't find it in the Old Testament, except you will find its original form in the Old Testament, which is Jacob. But in the New Testament, there are several Jameses. There are several. We're just going to talk about three of them. And, uh, you know, James is a popular name today. Anybody here named James? We had about three in the last service. Okay, James, otherwise known as Jim, Jim Bob, Jim Bobalewski, uh, uh, Jimbo, Jumbo, Jello, Jungle Jim, Jambo Rambo, Jamster Hamster, J-Man, Jameson, Jack, or ladies, there's derivatives of James for you, Jimberly, Jimmery, and Germs. And it, all these are Jameses. And um, I got those off the internet, so they're legit, all right? <laughs> but let's talk about three of them, and then let's decide who wrote this book. First one of the most popular is James the Apostle. James the Apostle, the brother of John, and the two of them, James and John, along with Peter, were in the inner circle. Remember? Peter, James, and John went a fishing. Remember that song? Remember that idea? These were the three of the inner circle. They went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They saw a lot of the things the other disciples didn't see because they were the kind of the big, the big three. They had a nickname too. They were called, their, their dad's name was Zebedee, and they had a nickname. Anybody remember what the nickname was? Sons of what? Sons of Thunder. Now, I'd love for my kids to be called sons or daughters of thunder because that says something about me, doesn't it? I mean, I can imagine uh, maybe when James and John were little, uh, you know, it's one thing for your mother to call you by your first and middle name. Anybody have a mom that did that? You know, she's mad at you and it's your first and middle name, but it's a whole nother level when dad bellows out, you better listen to your mother, boys. And he's yelling across the neighborhood and they're like, man, that sounds like thunder. We better get home. So they were called the Sons of Thunder. <clears throat> The problem with this James being the writer of this book is that we read in Acts chapter 12 about this James being killed by Herod. Not Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus, but his son, Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch, killed James with the sword. So we got to take this James out of the picture. There was also another apostle named James, son of Alphaeus. We read this in Matthew 10, 33. Now, he, he's, there's a lot of speculation here. I'm just going out on a limb here. But I think it was his mother who was one of the women at Calvary when Jesus was crucified. Remember, there were some women there? And, and one of those women appeared to be Mary, and uh, she was married to Alphaeus. And she was the mother of James the Younger, Younger, 1540. And the word there is actually James the Less, James the Less. Now, that's not a very nice nickname, is it? You know, you're not amount to much. But you think about it. If you're James, and there's a James, the son of thunder, you're going to be the less, right? Gladly. I don't want to fight you and your brother. So I'll take the less. So there was James the less. And we don't know much about him. We don't know where he went to. Tradition tells us, uh, uh, you know, he went off preaching the gospel. But <clears throat> we don't really know much about him. But the James that they believe who wrote this letter, as most of you know, is the James of Galatians 1.9, where Paul says, James, the Lord's brother. James, the Lord's brother. Actually, he was the half-brother of Jesus because he had the same mother but a different 
father. Who was this James's father? Joseph, yeah. And uh, we read in our focus time this verse that identifies the, some of the siblings of Jesus in, that, in the focus verse in Matthew 13, 55. And they said, um, are not his brothers James, and because he's listed first, he was probably the oldest, and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Jesus also had at least two half-sisters because it mentions sisters. And so at least two of them, probably there were more of them but they're not named. And most scholars believe that this James is the writer of this book. Now, this is interesting. It's interesting because of what we know from John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, there's an incident where there's a feast going on. Well, let's just read it. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, this is the brothers of Jesus, said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. Now you need to hear this in kind of a mocking tone. They're mocking him a little bit. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, let me add something here. If you do these things that you claim to do, show yourself to the world. Then John says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And this was toward the end of Jesus' ministry, John 7 is, maybe seven months before Calvary. And he had spent three years healing and teaching and uh, performing all kinds of miracles. <clears throat> but his brothers still weren't convinced. I mean, let's be honest. If your brother came to you and said, I am God, what would you say? Yeah, right. If you are, show us. Put up or shut up. That's what they were saying right here. You know, we will believe if we get to see something. So here's an opportunity, Jesus. There's a big feast going on. If you are who you say you are, go up there and show everybody. That way your disciples will be encouraged. They'll be strengthened. They'll be like, yeah, that's our man. You can't take him. That is Jambo Rambo right there. That's what they were saying. Be that guy. And uh, Jesus said, nope, it's not my time. I won't be coerced. I won't be forced. I won't be uh, humanly um, pushed into this. I'm on my father's timetable. And so if this James was that James who was saying put up or shut up, what happened? What happened? What was it that convinced him that Jesus was who he said he was. Very easy. One thing, the resurrection. You talk about put up or shut up. Jesus showed up that day, didn't he? The resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul is careful to point out who it was that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection. He said, Paul says, you know, this resurrection stuff is true. And it's true because a lot of people saw him die. And trust me, when the Romans killed someone, you really died. You didn't, as the Muslims claim, he didn't swoon, you know. It's like, oh, he just passed out. You put yourself what Jesus put himself through and see if you swoon. No, they were masters of execution. When they killed you, you were all the way dead. You weren't even mostly dead. You were all dead. And so Paul, it's the point Paul is making, he was dead. 
But after he died, people saw him. 500 people saw him at one time. I believe that's Matthew 28 when he gave the Great Commission. Then he appeared to the apostles. And then verse 7 says, then he appeared to who? To James. And this was before he appeared to the disciples. And this is like a, this is a personal visit to James. Why did Jesus do that? Well, Jesus sees potential. He knows, he knows the potential his little brother <clears throat> had. And he said, I'm going to pay him a special visit. I've got work for him to do. Now, maybe James is one of those guys that just needed the evidence. You know, they stand at a distance. Or maybe like some of you, you're here in church today because your wife, she's into it. And maybe it's good for the kids, but, you know, you're not convinced yet. Or ladies, maybe, maybe it's, you know, hey, you know what, the, I want my kids to have something, but I'm not, I'm not sure I'm 100% in. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of one foot in, I'm not both feet in. And maybe what it would take for you is some evidence, you know, if Jesus appeared to you or something. I mean, how many of you would believe if Jesus appeared to you? Why, sure you would. Yeah. You would. Why doesn't he do that? Well, he doesn't do that because he, he doesn't want to coerce you into the kingdom. You know, he had already came back from the dead, and he was, he was commissioning James. And maybe James was one of those guys that just needed that personal touch. And I'm telling you today, you have a personal touch. And uh, it, it's, it's partly going on this morning as the Holy Spirit is whispering to your heart about whether or not this is true or it's not true. And so James got some solid proof. That's what they were asking for in John 7, show us some proof. And uh, when he saw the proof, he said, I believe. I believe. And it changed him. It changed his heart. It changed his mind. It changed his life. He was at the ascension. He was with the 120 in the upper room in Acts chapters 1 and 2. He was there on the day of Pentecost when Peter, Peter preached the first gospel message, probably was baptized into Christ that day. And now he was ready to give his life in service, but not just to his brother, now to his Lord and his Savior. Ten years later, while James was serving the church at Jerusalem, a young man who had been touched by God, who had been blinded on the road to Damascus and had a personal encounter with Jesus, came to him. This is in Galatians chapter 1. A young man came to him named Saul. He had spent three years in the wilderness kind of reconfirming and rechanging, uh, you know, reimagining his, his pursuit of chasing down Christians to helping Christians. And he came to see Peter, and he also came to see James. James was a part of the affirmation or confirmation, or we could say ordination, of the ministry of Paul. James was no featherweight. He became a key, you know, Paul became big in the church, but James became a key leader and a great authority. He was an authority in the church. How do we know this? Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, there's this big meeting. Paul and Barnabas had just come in from this, from this evangelistic trip. They had con converted a lot of people from the Gentiles to Christianity. What had happened before was a lot of people from Judaism were coming into Christianity. So these Jewish people, you know, they were just, Christianity is a whole lot like Judaism. The same God, you know, and this God has expectations. And so they were coming in pretty easily, maintaining all of their Judaism for the most part. But when Paul started converting people from the Gentiles, they didn't have any clue what Judaism was, what the, what the Jewish faith was, what the Old Testament was. And they were coming in eager and passionate about serving their newfound Savior, 
and Christ. But so the Jewish people got a little upset, and they said, wait a minute, we can't let all these people into church. I mean, we paid a heavy price for this. We've been walking with him for years, thousands of years, and all of us guys, well, you know, we had to do the snip, snip thing there at the beginning of, the, of, the, uh, you know, of our time with him when we were boys. Are you all with me? You with me? And if we had to do the snip, snip thing, why don't they have to do it? I mean, that's our identity. That's how we know who we are. Now, don't ask me any questions about that, but, uh, you know, it was, I guess, the last line of proof if you're a Jew. But let's not go there. So they wanted to circumcise all these Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas stood up and said, absolutely not. We're not going to go back and reconvert these guys and say, hey, guess what? You got to have surgery. They're Christians just like you are. There was this big fight, big argument about it. They went back and forth, and people were talking, and, and they were pontificating and proving their point, and these Judaizers were saying, no, they got to become Jewish. And finally, after it was all done, guess who spoke up? James. James says, okay, boys, here's what we're going to do. And James came up with one of the most brilliant, genius solutions to one of the earliest problems you can read about this in Acts chapter 15 in a, in a way that would allow future Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians to still have fellowship. He maintained just enough of Judaism, <clears throat> don't eat meat with the blood in it, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, and just enough of Gentile, you don't have to do the surgery, guys, and, and, and it was a brilliant, brilliant a leadership decision, and it came from James, who stood up and spoke up when everybody else had had their say. He was a big deal. Paul calls him in chapter 2 of Galatians a pillar, not my pillow, but a pillar in the church. So let's recap real fast. You know, the, the technology is also, I don't have a clue what time it is, and so I see now, but let's hurry. Let's recap. James was the brother of Jesus. He became highly regarded among the apostles. He received one of the first personal visits from the Lord. He was an influential leader in Jerusalem church. He had a part in the confirmation of Paul. He was the one everybody looked to for guidance. He became an advocate for the poor, a pastoral peacemaker. Great big deal. He died because he was such a big influence in the Jewish people. Tradition tells us uh, the, you know, the high priest pushed him over the edge of a cliff when he was speaking to the people one day and that didn't kill him so they started stoning him that didn't kill him and he got up on his knees to pray and somebody hit him over the head with a club if you get hit over the head with a club you're probably going to die and that's what happened to james before he died he had some nicknames he was called james the just because of his wisdom james of jerusalem because he was like oh that's the james there's lots of jameses in jerusalem but that's the james the bulwark of the people, and that has to do with his being a pillar, the bulwark of the, of the people. And how about this one, Old Camel Knees? That was one of his nicknames. According to a second century Christian historian, James spent so much time in the temple praying for his people, the Jewish people, to praying for them to repent of their rejection of Jesus and to accept Jesus as uh, the Messiah. He spent so much time on his knees that his knees became hardened like the knees of a camel. That's a great nickname, isn't it? <clears throat> Maybe someone would call you that. Of course, we have carpet and nice padding. And so 
such a big deal. How does he introduce himself? Did he say, James, brother of Jesus, the big guy at Jerusalem, uh, the, the, the one who makes the decisions? No, he didn't say that. What, did he, what word did he use? James, a what? A servant. And the word here is actually doulos, which is the Greek word for slave. I'm just a slave of Christ. You know, let me tell you something, folks. This is the starting point for a faith that works. It's a faith that works because I understand who I am. I understand that my status doesn't determine who I am, my accomplishments, my relational position. I might be a dad. I might be a husband. I might be a pastor. I might be an army chaplain. I might be a whole lot of other things. None of that matters primarily in light of the fact that I'm a slave of Christ. And so are you. You want a faith that works? That's the starting point. That's the starting point. So we'll pick up the rest of this next time. But that, that's, that's what I want to invite you to. I've got a little bit more, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. This is really unlike me. Uh, but I know you got things to do today. Look, there, here's the starting point. Who are you? Who are you? Spent a lot of time talking about James, but this is, the, this is kind of the key to unlocking this book. If, if we know that Jesus gets us, how do we know that we get him? Well, first and foremost, because I know I'm just his slave. Lord, whatever you want, whenever you want, for as long as you need me, I'm yours. Would you stand with me and let's pray that prayer. Almighty God, may that be our prayer today. Whatever you want, whatever you want from us, whatever you want from our marriage, whatever you want from my life, whatever you want, God, whatever you want, whenever you want it, Lord, whenever you want it, for as long as you want it, we're yours. You own us. You bought and paid for us at Calvary. May we understand, Lord, that of all the things we do in life, of all the pursuits we have, our primary pursuit is to be your servant, the servant of Christ. And, Lord, we thank you for that opportunity, for, for that relationship is the only one that will sustain us in this life through the trials and tribulations and attacks that are coming into the next. With that, Lord, we give you this service in Jesus' name. Amen.